But anyway, I'm so grateful to be part of a church that knows how to have fun. We come early, we drink some coffee and eat some donuts. We dress up silly, we have a good time. Uh, I'm glad there's nobody in here that walks around with a sour face. Well, there might be a couple of you, but I'm not going to call you out. But anyway, I, I just am so glad that we know how to have fun. And especially at this time of year, you know, the holidays can be stressful, it can be hard, you have extra, uh, extra chores and, and, and extra things you have to do, you have to put up the lights, you have to go buy presents, then you have to wrap them if you're not lazy like me, and then, uh, you know, so there's just a lot more to do, and sometimes we can get stressed out by it all, but you got, got to remember to slow down and have some fun from time to time. All right, well, last week, Pastor started us off on our Christmas series, and he talked about Jesus and how he was the promise that was foretold, right? And you guys looked at uh, Isaiah and talked about how, you know, he predicted and talked about what we should look for when we're looking for the Messiah. Well, today, we're going to be talking about how Jesus then fulfilled those prophecies. So today, our message title is Jesus, the Promise Fulfilled. Now, if you've read in the Bible, you'll know that in the book of Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews spent the whole book talking about how Jesus was better. He talks about how Jesus is better than the temple. Jesus was better than the law. Jesus was better than the, the, than the Judah and the, the priesthood that happened there in Israel. So he goes through all of these different things and talked about how Jesus surpassed them all. Well, in that vein, someone has gone back and they've done a little comparison when it comes to Christmas time as well, and they've compared Jesus to Santa Claus. So we're going to look at a few things about Jesus and Santa Claus, and we're going to see who's better, J.C. or S.C., all right? So we'll just go through these real quick and, and have fun with these. Santa Claus lives at the North Pole, but Jesus is everywhere. Santa Claus rides in a sleigh, but Jesus walks on water. Santa Claus comes once a year, but Jesus is an ever-present help. Santa Claus fills your stockings with goodies, but Jesus supplies all your needs. You have to wait in line to see Santa Claus, but Jesus is as close as the mention of his name. Santa Claus lets you sit on his knee. Jesus lets you rest in his arms. Santa Claus has to ask what you want for Christmas, but Jesus knows everything about you even how many hairs you have or don't have on your head. Santa Claus has a belly like a bowl full of jelly, but Jesus has a heart full of love. All Santa Claus can say is ho, 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 but Jesus offers health, help, and hope. Santa Claus says you better not cry, but Jesus says cast all your cares on me. Santa's little helpers make toys, but Jesus gives you a new life and prepares a mansion for you. Santa Claus is a jolly old elf, but Jesus is the king of kings. Santa Claus may make you chuckle, but Jesus gives you joy that is your strength. And Santa Claus will put gifts under your tree, but Jesus is the gift, and he died on a tree for you and me. So when you, I know there's just a funny little list, but sometimes we have to look at things and just see that, you know, just how much Jesus means. And so while we do look at Santa Claus, and that is part of all of the, the Christmas trappings, and we enjoy that sort of thing, we do want to remember what is the real reason for the season. So as I mentioned, last week we talked about how Jesus was the promise foretold. But all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God announced the promise 
of his Lord, uh, of, of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said to, to Eve, he said, listen, you're going to have to leave the garden, but I promise you, your seed will one day crush the head of the serpent. And everything that was messed up here in Eden, it's going to be put right someday. So that is the promise that was foretold. Um, one theologian, uh, his name's Ian Paisley, he said this. He said, I believe in a supernatural Christianity which presents a supernatural Christ who had a supernatural birth and lived a supernatural life, who died a supernatural death and who rose a supernatural resurrection and who is coming again in a supernatural manner. That is the, the, the Christ of Christmas. He's Jesus. He's the Son of God. He was the one that was promised to us, and that's why we stop. Every year you say, well, why do we have to stop and think about it every year? Why do we uh, orient an entire month around this idea of Jesus? Well, because we're, we're experiencing this. This is the greatest gift of God. It was a turning point in history, and so we're going to be examining that a little bit today. Now, if you've got your Bibles and you want to turn along with us, we're going to read the text today in Matthew chapter 1. It's interesting when we look at the gospel stories, there's different accounts. Um, you know, Matthew talks about things from Joseph's perspective. Uh, Mark just doesn't tell us much at all about Christmas. He says, well, forget all that. We'll just get right into when Jesus started doing his ministry. And Luke gives us from Mary's perspective. So we get different pictures of what was going on at this gospel uh, or, or at the Christmas time. But today we're in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 25. So let's read this. This should be a very familiar passage of Scripture, but then we're going to talk about it a little bit more today. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when jo Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born, and Joseph named him Jesus. Okay, so this passage is, again, very familiar. We've probably read it many times. But when we read these sorts of things, the best thing to do is to put yourself in the story. Think how you would have felt if that was you that had received this message from the Lord. And so the first thing we see as we look at this passage of Scripture is we see the mystery of His birth. We read of two people, Mary and Joseph. And Mary was the woman that God chose to be the vehicle where He would bring His Son into the world. Now, as you consider the unusual means of Jesus' birth, a couple of things make this a great mystery. For one thing, we want to see that Jesus didn't come in an important place. You know, Jesus could have come in Rome. Rome was the center of the known world at that time. But that's not where uh, God chose to send his son. He sent him to Bethlehem. In Luke 24, it says this. It says, because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home, and he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. 
By leaving Nazareth and going to Bethlehem, Joseph was fulfilling a prophecy that had been made in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. If you come on Wednesday nights, we are, we've already looked at this prophecy because we've been going through what are some of the prophecies that were given about Jesus. But it says this, it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Now, as we discussed a couple weeks ago, Bethlehem actually means house of bread. And you say, well, what does that mean? It, well, it, 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 for, it, it is, it's a picture of what Jesus would be, because what does he say? He says, I'm the bread of life. And, and so Bethlehem is a house of bread. Now, Bethlehem had a good reputation because the great King David had come from Bethlehem, but it was still just a very minor, unimportant village. It wasn't where the seat of power is. If you think about it, David, when he became king, he could have made Bethlehem his, uh, the, the city where he ruled and reigned from, but he didn't do that. He went into Jerusalem, took that over, expanded it, and he said, this is the city of God because this is where the holy hill, Mount Moriah, stands. So he went to Jerusalem. So you would think, well, maybe if God wants to send his son down to us he would send him in Jerusalem that's where the temple was that's where uh, everybody centered their worship in those days but he didn't choose Jerusalem he chose Bethlehem and he revealed this to a prophet um, several hundred years before Jesus actually came along now Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth so if they live in Nazareth how are they going to get to Bethlehem to fulfill this prophecy well, see, God came in and he, or, he ordained for things to happen in such a way where Joseph didn't have a choice. What does it say? It says that he had to go to Bethlehem because the Roman emperor said, we need a census. So everybody go back to your hometown and let's register everybody so we know how many people are in our empire. And so Joseph had no choice. I'm sure that if, uh, if you had a very pregnant, about-to-bust wife, you would say, now is not the time for a road trip. But Joseph didn't really have a say in the matter. And so he had to go, and so, and, and so we see that God um, divinely ordained for that to happen. He, he reached into history, and he arranged for Mary and Joseph to go to Bethlehem. Why did he do that? Why does it matter? Why couldn't Jesus have just been born in Nazareth? Uh, why was it so important that he came from Bethlehem? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, it ties Jesus to the promise that God made to King David. Because what did he say? He said, I'm going to have one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne, and he'll sit on the throne forever. Well, we know that as humans, none of us can sit on a throne forever. Even if you were a king for your entire life, from the moment you were born till you were dying, that wouldn't be forever. There's only one way that someone could sit on that throne forever, and that's for them to never die. And so Jesus, when he was resurrected, when he went back to heaven, he sat on the throne, and he will remain there for all eternity. So that was the fulfillment. So that was one reason why God said, you need to go to Bethlehem. The second reason is it reveals something about the Messiah. See, the Jews in Jesus' time were expecting a Messiah to come in and to be a military or a political leader. He's going to come in, he's going to overthrow the Romans, and we're going to have our own nation again, and we won't ever have to be subject to their taxes or their, their abuses or anything like that. That's what they were looking for. 
But God sent Jesus to Bethlehem to show us who the Messiah truly is. He's not some ruling, conquering, uh, you know, uh, person that was going to come in and just take everything over. No, he was going to be humble. He was just going to be one of the normal people that came. He wanted uh, Jesus to experience the full human experience. And how many of you know, if you're, if you're one of the rich and powerful, you have a very different experience in your life than if you're just a normal, everyday Joe kind of guy, right? It, it's a very different kind of experience. But God chose the ordinary to be the birthing place for His extraordinary Savior. He chose the most unusual, undesirable, and unlikely place to show up and say, here I am, I'm entering into this story, and we say, well, why do you call it a story? Because that's what it is. When we read the Bible, what is it? It's a story of how God has interacted with His people throughout history. And it tells us what His plan is for salvation, how things got messed up, Back in the Garden of Eden, when we used our free will to, to choose to, do our, to go our own way instead of doing things God's way. And so God had to come in and he had to fix everything. The story of that is in this Bible. So um, it, it's, it, that's why we sometimes refer to it as the story of God. It, it's telling a history. You know, when we talk, think about our life, you know, it, it, how do we do that? We think about um, the things that have happened to us, and we begin to draw a narrative out of that. Well, I grew up in such and such a place, and then I went to school here, and then I met these people, and they became my friends, or then my family moved over here. And so how do we do that? How do we define our story? We take a look at all the things that happened to us, and we put them together into a narrative. And that's what this is. It's not saying that it's made up. It's not saying that it's not true. It's just hanging it together into some, uh, a, a story that makes sense. So, what Jesus does by coming in Bethlehem in, in a, a humble, ordinary place, it shows us that we can be ordinary people living ordinary lives in ordinary places, and yet we can still have a dramatic interaction with God, a visitation from God. It's not about the place. It's about the person, the presence, and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wherever he shows up, there we can encounter God. And so you might say, well, I don't live in Washington, D.C. I don't live in the most important town in America. I don't, live, I don't even live in Frankfurt, not even the most important uh, town politically in, in Kentucky. But we live in Louisville, and we can still encounter God right here. If we were out in a holler somewhere in eastern Kentucky, you could still experience Jesus there because God comes to us. He meets us in our ordinary place. That's comforting to us because not all of us will be powerful. Not all of us will be rich and famous. Not all of us will be remembered by history, but we can all encounter God. So God sent Jesus to an ordinary place. Second, he used ordinary people. Mary and Joseph were not anything special. The only thing special about them was their ancestry. And that was simply because God had already promised that, he was, that Jesus would come through the line of David. So that was really the only requirement that they had to have. Well, that and one other thing, they had to be obedient. They had to be willing to be used by God. So we read in our text of the earthly mother of the Lord Jesus. Her name is Mary, and in some religious circles, they've elevated Mary. They've said, oh, God chose her, God honored her, and so they have elevated her in their mind, and they've exalted her to a place of prominence that the Bible never assigns or never ascribes to her. Because of the role she played in the birth of Christ, because when the angel came, she didn't reject it and say, God, not me, go pick someone else. But she said, whatever has to happen, I'm your servant, Lord. 
Because of that, she does deserve to be admired, but she doesn't deserve to be worshipped. We don't worship things that aren't divine. And there's no person that's been divine except for Jesus. That's why he's the only human that we can rightly worship and make the object of our worship. And so the truth is that Mary was nothing more than an ordinary person chosen by God to bring about this extraordinary event. We don't know much about Mary's personal history. Luke chapter 3 gives a little snapshot of her genealogy. It tells us that she came from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David. But outside of that, when we meet Mary, she's nothing special. She's just a village peasant girl who God has chosen to use as the vehicle that Jesus would come into the world. She was a simple, common, ordinary person. So I want to encourage you. You don't have to be fancy. You don't have to be special. God can use simple, ordinary people. Why would God choose to bring about such an important, extraordinary event? I mean, this was literally the turning point in history. You know, uh, when people say, well, Jesus wasn't that important, we say, well, what year is it? It's 2023. Well, how did we switch over from, from B.C. to A.D.? What does that mean? A.D. means Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We changed our very calendar, the way we calculated time based on when they thought Jesus showed up. That's why we use those, that terminology. So God does as he wills, and he chooses to work through ordinary circumstances, ordinary people to bring about extraordinary things. Sometimes when we read in the Bible... It's not a very flattering picture. So that's another thing. You know, sometimes we look at the Bible and we say, oh, I want to have faith like Abraham, or I want to be uh, victorious like David, or I want to be bold like Peter. And we see all these people in the Bible and we think, we see these things about them and we say, well, I want to be like that. But there's a whole lot of people in the Bible who it doesn't talk very <laughs> kindly about. You know, even the 12 disciples from time to time, Jesus would say, do you still not understand it? Do you still not get it? And yet those 12 men would form the foundation of the church. It was their willingness to go out and be used by Jesus that brought the church to being. Um, I love this uh, passage in, in Paul. For in, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this. He says, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or were powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And He chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So Paul there was just pointing out that you know many of the people that were in the church they, they didn't come from the high societal circles. Most of them were just simple people. In fact, a large proportion of them were women who didn't have very many rights at all. A lot of them were slaves. We see that, that several uh, of the early believers were slaves, so they didn't even have their own freedom. So God chose to work through people that weren't fancy. Another example of this is in Titus. I was reading this this morning during my devotion time where he says, even the prophets of Crete have talked about the, the, the Cretans and they say that they're, they're lazy, they're like cruel animals and they're liars. And then what does Paul say? He doesn't say, but he was mistaken about that. No, he says, actually, that's true. <laughs> so you need to make sure that, that we work extra hard when we're trying to point them and show them how to live a godly life. 
But God can and will use any place, any person, any procedure if it's part of bringing His will to pass. One uh, preacher put it like this. He said, He doesn't need the most educated. He needs the most dedicated. He doesn't need the most informed. He needs the most transformed. He doesn't need the most able. He needs the most available. See, God can work through any of us as long as we're willing to say, God, whatever you're trying to do in my life, I'm okay with that. I'm going to surrender. That, that's why we use that terminology of surrender. We're saying, God, I'm not in charge. I'm not going to be the one calling the shots anymore. You're going to be the one calling the shots. And whatever you ask me to do, I'm going to be obedient in it. You all know that I love the Bears because I hate myself and I don't like to uh, follow winning teams. But they were interviewing uh, the, one of the Bears coaches about a very talented but very often injured player. And so they were asking them, they said, aren't you frustrated about this player who has so much potential, who could do so much on the field and help you win games, but they're injured all the time? And the coach thought about it for a minute and he said, yeah. He said, when you put it like that, the best ability is availability. And, and he said, and this guy's not living up to that. And it's the same way in our walk with Christ. You know, you might look at yourself and you might say, I don't have many talents. I don't have many gifts. I don't have much to offer. Many of us listen to the lies of the enemy when he tries to tear ourselves down. You know, he, he tries to get in your mind and cause you to doubt yourself and to think less of yourself. But let me tell you something. You don't have to be a super talented. You don't have to be the best singer or the best speaker. You don't have to be the most charismatic. You don't have to have any of those things. If all you have to do is just say, God, whatever I have, you can use it. And God will use it. God will multiply it. You know, there's a famous story in the Bible. It talks about how Jesus saw people and there was a bunch of them and they were hungry. And he said, what do we have? All they had was two fishes and some loaves. And, and the young boy who had that in his lunchbox, it wasn't much. And it certainly wasn't enough to feed a crowd the size that was following Jesus. But he said, God, what I have, you can use. And God did a miracle that day. Something that we're still talking about thousands of years later. So we can look in the Bible and we can see example after example of people who weren't perfect. But God looked at them and he said, you, you're the one. You're the one I want to use. And all it took was them saying, God... I'm here for it. Whatever you want to do in my life, I'll follow along. And God worked through their lives, and here we are still talking about it years later. So the second thing is, not only was Jesus' birth a mystery because God didn't choose to, to bring him through the Roman system, you know, if, if you think about it, that would have been the easy way to go because the Roman emperors were already telling people, hey, I'm, I'm divine. I'm a son of God. I'm a God myself. They were being venerated after they died. Can you imagine if after you died, people would come and they would offer offerings at your gravestone? You know, that would be ridiculous. We don't think like that today, but that's how they looked at it back then, is that if this person was in charge, it's because the gods loved them, and they chose them, and they put them in that place. God flipped that system upside down, and he said, I'm not sending Jesus to be one of the Caesars. I'm sending Jesus to my people, to the humble origins, and I'm going to work through them just like I promised through the prophets. So not only was his birth a mystery, but it was a miracle. This understanding of miracles is, is looked down on by a lot of people. In, in our current society, um, you know, people reject the idea of miracles out of hand. 
and there was, uh, and we talked about this before, is that you know there was a Jesus seminar back in the '70s that they went through and they tried to look and see, well, what are the things in the in the New Testament that we can say that Jesus actually said? But they assumed from the very beginning that anything that talked about a miracle, about him healing somebody or walking on water, or, or raising someone from the dead, or, or healing someone, uh, healing a leper, they said all of that can't really happen. We know that miracles aren't true, and because of that, they ended up throwing out the majority of the, old, of the New Testament because they said, well, miracles don't happen. And they're not the first ones to do that. This started a couple hundred years ago. Uh, famously, Thomas Jefferson, he did the same thing. He sat down with his Bible. In fact, he sat down, he got two uh, copies of the Bible and a razor blade and a, uh, and a stack of paper. And what he did is he went through the Bible and he started cutting out the verses that he thought were accurate. And he put them all together and then he'd glue them to the piece of paper. And when he was done with it, he had his own little collections of things that he chose to believe about God. He threw out all the miracles. He threw out the virgin birth. He threw out all of that. And at the end of the day, he had someone, a Jesus who was no more and no less than a good ethical teacher. He was just a, a good guy who taught us some things and who could perhaps give us a little bit of wisdom. And commenting on the virgin birth specifically, he said, someday we're going to look back at this, this story of the virgin birth and that's going to be viewed as ridiculous and considered a fable, just like we consider the Greek gods and goddesses to be fables. We don't believe them, that they're true. But see, although Thomas Jefferson might have been a great man, he was a great thinker, he made a, a big difference in this country. I mean, writing the Declaration of, of, of Independence and being involved, involved in, in that process, he might have been a great man, but because of what he believed about the Bible, we see that he wasn't a wise man. How do we know that? Because he was elevating his own reason, his own judgment, above what God himself had revealed. Imagine if God came and he spoke to you very clearly and he said, he, he said this is the truth or this is what, uh, what, I, what I'm going to do. And then we looked at God and we said, no, nah, I don't believe that. What are we doing there? We're elevating our own reason, our own judgment above God's. Now, I don't know about you, but I've made enough poor decisions in my life to not trust my judgment all that much. You know, I try to be wise. I try to be smart. I try to look at Scripture and live according to godly wisdom and godly advice, but I don't always get it right. I mess it up sometimes. And so if I have a faulty faculty that can't always make proper judgments, how can I look at the Bible and say, yeah, I understand everything in there, and I can go through and pick and choose what I want out of it? That's just not the way it works. So what we have to understand is that this story of Jesus begins with a miracle. You have to accept that from the very beginning, and that's what the virgin birth was. Al Mohler, who is you know, from Louisville, he was the president over at Southern Seminary for a while, he said those who would deny the virgin birth, they reject the authority of Scripture, and they deny the supernatural birth of the Savior, and in doing so they undermine the very foundations of the gospel. They have no way of explaining the deity of Christ, and with it, the gospel stands or falls. Why is that so important? Well, because if God, if Jesus wasn't God, then he was just like you and I. He was human, just like you and me. And there's not a single one of us that could lay down our life and pay the penalty for everyone's sins. If I went and I died on a cross, the only person I could pay for would be myself. I would be paying my own penalty. 
But the reason that Jesus was able to provide an ultimate salvation, one that applied to everybody, was two reasons. Number one, because he didn't have any of his own sins that he had to cover. And number two, he was the author of life. He created all of humanity. The foundation of humanity was in him. What does it say in John chapter 1? It says that nothing that was made was made without the word. Who is the Word? Jesus is the Word. So if we understand that everything was made through Him, then we understand that everything can be remade or corrected or repaired through Him. So we read in verse 18 that His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before that marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in, in those times... Marriage and, well, dating and courtship and marriage, it was really like three stages. The first stage was just a, you know, I'm interested in this individual. I'm going to go talk to, uh, I'm going to talk to my parents. I'm going to talk to her parents. We're going to make arrangements that we would like to pursue a courting relationship. You know, at that point, if, if she said okay and he said okay and all the parents were on board with it, then, then you guys were courting, you were dating, you were going steady, right? I guess that's when you could give each other, you know, hoodies and letter jackets and, and that kind of thing. So you can wear my class ring. It was, it was just a statement that we're beginning this process. Now, once they had courted for a while, then they would become formally engaged. And they would say, okay, this is working out. We're going to move forward with this. And they would enter into a period of engagement. We do that, right? We exchange a ring. You get down on your knee and you say, hey, will you be with me for the rest of my life? But that doesn't mean you're married at that point. You've just entered into the next phase of it. You're committed to saying, I want to move forward to a place where eventually we can be husband and wife together. And so that's the stage that they were in. They were engaged. Although they didn't exchange rings like we do, that's the stage that they were in. So then when Mary shows up pregnant while they're engaged, you can imagine what Joseph probably felt. He probably started asking, wait a minute, has she been unfaithful? Does this mean the end of our relationship? What's going on here? And it actually says that he decided, I'm not putting up with this. I'm, I'm out of it. Why? Because he was looking at it from a human perspective. He was saying, listen, if I know she and I have not been together and she's pregnant, I know how that happened, or at least he thought he did. But the angel came along and the angel said, listen, you need to understand that this is that she's telling the truth. She's not lying to you. She didn't cheat on you. She didn't go outside of the bounds of what's acceptable. This is something that God is doing. And so that's why God, it was a gracious thing that God sent the angel to Joseph to tell him what was really going in and to let him in on what God's plan was. Now, Many non-believers, many liberal theologians, they still argue against the virgin birth because they have this materialistic mindset that the only thing that exists is what I can see and touch and feel and measure with scientific instruments. There is no such thing as a spiritual reality. There's no such thing beyond what we can measure through scientific knowledge. They have that understanding, and because of that, they reject anything that's miraculous. So they would say, listen... I've known enough young ladies that got pregnant out of wedlock to know how that happened, right? Something happened that should not have, and now a pregnancy has resulted. And that's because they're looking at it from a human perspective. But 
if we don't reject that God can actually come and change things and do things, then we understand that God can create life. If God created the universe, if He created the world, if He created all of us, then surely He could create life within the womb of somebody who had never been there before, who had never done those kinds of things. And so that's why we accept it. If we reject the virgin birth, See, the virgin birth isn't a secondary thing. It isn't just something where we can say, well, you can choose to believe that or not. You know, there's a lot of things as far as the Christian faith where we can say, you know, that's something that we can agree to disagree on. You know, it, there, there might not be clear guidance or there might be something in there that is it's cultural. Like, for instance, there's none of us here that says to be a Christian, you can't eat shrimp, you know, or you can't eat pork. And yet at one time, those were some of the commandments that God had given their people. And we understand now that those were cultural things. The reason why is because they didn't know about cooking uh, the way that we did. Um, that There were cultural things about, I mean, just anybody who's ever been to southern Illinois, you've been around a pig farm and you know it ain't the cleanest place to be, right? So there was a reason God gave those restrictions. But we understand that that doesn't mean that we can't have bacon today. But there are certain things about the Christian faith that are fundamental. And the virgin birth is one of those. Because if you don't have the virgin birth, if Jesus was the product of natural reproduction, there's no difference between you and me and him. And, and there would be no more difference than anyone who had ever lived. And in fact, the early church had to think about this for a while because for a while, some of them read the passage about how when Jesus went to John the Baptist and he was baptized and it says that the Holy Spirit came and descended on him, there were some people who said, well, maybe that's when Jesus became the Son of God because that's when we see the Spirit descend onto him and that's when we hear the voice that says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so maybe at that point, God just adopted a human person and said, you are now going to be my representative. You're now going to be my son. And that was what that heresy actually was called. It was called adoptionism. And, and so the church had to come back and say, listen, that doesn't work. Because that means if, if Jesus was just a normal human who was adopted by God, that means he, he could have adopted anyone. And then Jesus also would have been subject to sin the same way that we are. And so then when he went and died on the cross, he would have been paying for his own sins. He wouldn't have been paying for ours. And so we have to understand that the virgin birth is central to understanding who Jesus is and what it means. So God chose Mary and Joseph because they were already committed to each other. They had already said, listen, I like you. You like me. We can go through this. In fact, I would like to live the rest of my life with you. I'd like to start a family with you. Well, think about that. If Jesus or if God's going to send his son, he needs somebody that will help him, who will raise him, who will teach him to be obedient, who will take him to the temple, who will show him what it means to, to, to uh, serve God. And you say, well, wait a minute. Why would Jesus need to know those things? Because Jesus went through the entire full human experience just like us. We all start off as, as uh, you know, very uneducated people. We have to learn how to feed ourselves, how to, to take care of ourselves, how to put our own clothes on. I mean, I remember, you know, when, when my son Benjamin was going through the phase of learning how to put his shoes on, it was always on the wrong foot every single time. And I thought, how can you not understand this? Your, your right foot curves this way and your left foot curves that way. Why are you jamming your foot into there when it goes the other direction? That can't be comfortable. And yet he did it every time. So as his parent, we had to say, you've got those on the wrong feet. Let's switch those. And he'd put them on and he'd say, well, yeah, that works a lot better. 
but he wouldn't remember it the next time. You know, it's just part of being a parent. You have to walk people through that process. And God knew that Jesus needed that. He chose two people who were committed to each other, who wanted to have a family, and he said, listen, you're going to have a family. And in fact, when we read further on in the Scripture, we see that Jesus had other brothers and sisters that were born the natural way. And so, but God just said, listen, we're going to add one more into there, and he's going to be my, my son, and he's going to be the Savior of his people. All right. So it was a natural arrangement between Mary and Joseph, but it was a supernatural accomplishment that came about. See, Mary was a spouse to Joseph. They were in that second stage of being engaged to each other and getting ready to get married. And so that is why the angel of the Lord came down and told Joseph, this is the plan, this is what's going on. In other words, Joseph, once he heard from the angel, he didn't have to doubt anymore. He didn't have to wonder anymore. There's a lot of times in my life where I wish, God, would you just send an angel down here and just let me know what's going on? Can you give me the plan? Can you tell me what to expect next? And man, I would really appreciate that. And so that's why it was something that gave Joseph to hang on to. Something where he could say, listen, there's a lot of things I don't understand, but an angel showed up. And he told me exactly what was going to happen. So that's why he could go through and and be faithful and not have to worry about it. Joseph didn't have to worry because this wasn't a human conception in the natural, normal way. It was a heavenly intervention. So someone might say that it is absolutely impossible for a virgin to conceive and to give birth to a child. And they would be absolutely correct from a human perspective. You know, there are some species on this planet that they can, if they can't find a mate, it is built into their genetics where they can just basically clone themselves. It's a weird thing that God built into the biology of this planet. There are some species that can do that. Humans aren't one of them. You know, we're not the salamanders that can do that or the starfish or, the, or that sort of thing. So, so there's only one way this happens except for in this one case. If God can create life as he did with Adam and Eve, he can create life in a womb. All right. So we see that Jesus' birth was a mystery. Uh, We see that it was a miracle. And the last thing that we see about Jesus' birth is that there's a message hidden within it. See, one of the things that God likes to do is he likes to take things that he did before and he likes to do them over in a slightly different way. We often talk about this as types and shadows. You know, we look into the Old Testament message and we see things that they kind of look like the story of Christ. And you might say, well, what's an example of that? Well, let's think about Abraham. What did Jesus or what did God ask Abraham to do? He said, take Isaac, take him up on the mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him to me to prove your devotion to me. But what did God do? He didn't allow him to sacrifice his son. He said, you have proven your devotion, and I've provided a sacrifice in your place. Hmm, that kind of sounds a little bit like what happened with Jesus. Except here's the difference. God actually did send his son. And rather than providing an atonement that would keep his son from dying, he actually allowed his son to lay down his life and be the sacrifice on our behalf. There's other things. You know, we see David. David was a king. Jesus would rule as a king. 
We see uh, various times when prophets would heal. Prophets would even bring people back to life. What would happen with Jesus? He would heal. He would bring people back to life. So we see things in the Old Testament that hint at the New Testament. And sometimes God takes what happened in the Old Testament and he tweaks it a little bit to show that Jesus is like that, but it's different with him. There's something special. There's something unique. So if we go back to the Old Testament, we see that God brought forth a motherless woman, Eve, from the body of a man. Eve didn't have a mom. She came from Adam's rib. She was formed out of Adam. And then to flip that on its head, God brought forth a fatherless son uh, from from a woman. So he he took that same thing and he flipped it just a little bit. There... um, And it does make a difference whether or not Jesus was virgin born. And so if you're having trouble with that, you need to understand that, listen, we're not just making this up whole cloth. This is what it tells us. It's what it teaches us in the Bible. And if we don't accept the virgin birth, then it undermines everything we understand about who Jesus was and what his death on the cross could accomplish for us. So the mystery and the miracle of of, of Christ's birth are wonderful, But the most amazing aspect is the message of his birth. What does it say to us? Well, it tells us that he was our promised Savior. The angel of the Lord informed Joseph of his plan, and because of that, we understand that Jesus met all the requirements of who the Messiah was going to be. We've been studying the prophecies about him. So there's uh, one mathematician who was a Christian believer. He said, listen, I love math. I love numbers. And so he, he said, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do the math a little bit. And he went through the Old Testament and he said, I have found eight clear prophecies that tell us who is the Messiah, uh, who, who, who the Messiah is going to be, what are the signs that they are actually the Messiah. So he's like, I have found eight different prophecies. So he used math and he said, if you take all these together, what are the chances that one man could fulfill all eight of these prophecies? And he started doing the math, and he added it up, and he came to the result that it would be 10 to the 17th power, which would be 100 quadrillion, 1 in 100 quadrillion, which is almost as much as some of us owe on our student loans, right? But if you took that and you converted that to silver dollars, right, so we've got 100 quadrillion silver dollars, and we dumped them on the ground, it would cover the entire state of Texas to a depth of two feet. That is a lot of silver dollars. I wish I had a couple of those. Now imagine you've got all those silver dollars and then someone tells you you got to find the one right one that meets all the requirements. That's a whole lot of looking. You talk about a needle in a haystack. So just mathematically, we see that, that Jesus' birth was a miracle. You know, it was something that, that because it was foretold and because we were looking for certain requirements, it's not like we could say, well, it wasn't Jesus. It was actually his buddy Bob that lived down the street. No, there's only one man who could have fulfilled all of those prophecies. So in other words, Jesus was the promise of God fulfilled. He was, like I mentioned, that seed promised to Adam and Eve that would come and would crush the head of the serpent. He was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that the whole earth would be blessed through his lineage. He was uh, the one that Isaiah talked about when he said a virgin will conceive and will give birth and he, he shall be named Emmanuel. Uh, he was the righteous branch foretold by Jeremiah that would come from the, the line of David. 
He was the ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from old and from everlasting, uh, everlasting, just like Micah prophesied. So we can go back and we can look at all of these prophecies and we can see how Jesus fulfilled each of those. Now, you might look at that and you might say, well, it did say that when he would be born, he'd be called Emmanuel. All right. And, and, but, but they named him Jesus. So how does that line up? Well, what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us. So even though that wasn't the given name that was given to him, it was, uh, it, it was the reality of the situation that Jesus was God come down living with us. Now, why did they name him Jesus then? Well, the angel told him, said, this is what you're going to name him because he will save his people. Jesus is another form of the, of the name Yehoshua, which we translate Joshua. It means he saves or it could be he heals, right? And so he was given that name Jesus because he would be the only one who could save us from the sin, from the disease of sin and all of the effects that it has on our life. He, who was the promised Savior, stepped out of the pages of eternity and into the pages of history to fulfill the prophecies and to become our promised Savior. So why does all of this matter? You say, why does it matter what I believe about the virgin birth? Why does it matter if Jesus ticked off all the boxes? Well, here's the thing. And, and uh, Justin, if you want to join me up here, we're getting ready to close. But here's the thing. We all know what it means to find someone trustworthy. Some of us, we, we can think of people in our mind that it's like that person is as good as their word. If they say it, I can count on them. They're going to do it. For others... We can say, listen, this person might say that they're going to do this or do that, but I've learned that I can't count on that person. And so Jesus comes down and he fulfills God promises, God's promises to us. What does that tell us about God? It tells us that he's trustworthy. It tells us that we can count on him. So that's why this matters. Uh, and so I want to just go through a few of the promises that God has given to us. You know, he's made many promises in Scripture, and not all of those promises apply to us. Sometimes he was making a specific promise to a specific person in a specific situation, but there are some things that he says, listen, if you will be my people, these things you can count on. So what does God promise in Scripture? Number one, he promises us salvation through faith. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Why? So whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life he promised to save us if we had faith in jesus he promised to forgive our sins have anyone has anyone here ever apologized for something but that person couldn't let go of it they couldn't forgive you and yet when we go to god no matter what we've done we know that if we will ask him to forgive us he'll do it first john 1 9 says if we confess our sins he's faithful and just and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness he'll give us eternal life some of us walk through life and we're scared of death i even know of some people who they say i'm not going to any funerals because i don't want to confront this idea of death it scares me at a visceral level i can't be in a room with with a, a dead body or, or i don't want to think about how my life might end but John 10, 28 says this. Jesus said, I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Not, no one will snatch them out of my hand. So that's another promise of God that we know that we can trust because God has proven that he's trustworthy. He promises to give us strength in times of difficulty. Isaiah 41, 10 says this. 
Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteousness and with my right hand. He promises to comfort us in our suffering. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort any of those that are in trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. I don't know about you, but I crave that comfort in my life when I'm suffering. He's promised to be faithful. Lamentations 3 says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He's promised to provide all your needs. Philippians 4.9 says, And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. He's promised us victory over sin. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. He's promised to guide us. John 16.13 says, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on His own. He will speak only what He hears and He will tell you what is yet to come. He promises us peace. Philippians 4 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then the last thing He promises us is that He will always be present. Matthew 28, verse 20, one of the last things that Jesus said before He ascended into heaven, He said, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now that's a long list of promises. And there might be some of them that are in there that you're like, that's the one. That's the one I need today. And here's the thing. Because God has proven, and He did it through the very birth of Jesus, He's proven how trustworthy He is. That He can make promises and He can come through on, and He can fulfill those promises. Because He's trustworthy, we can have confidence you know, some people think that faith is I'm just believing with no evidence. But that's not what faith is. Faith is saying I'm confident enough to trust God and to live like what He's telling me is true and like what it is is accurate. I'm trusting, I'm confident enough to be like Mary and Joseph to say, God, I don't know why you chose to mess up my plans like this or I'm not sure why it had to be like this, but whatever you need, I'm going to be obedient. Use me, I'm your servant. So that's what true faith is. And so as we leave today, I want you to understand that, that God is trustworthy. And you might say, you just gave a bunch of evidence, and, and you, you talked about you know the, histor the history and the prophecies and all of that, but it reveals something to us about the character of God that we can count on Him. Now, if you will all stand today, as we end today, it's the second Sunday, and as usual, we're going to take communion. So if the ushers would come forward, uh, we're going to prepare for that.